We are in Second uh, Samuel, the fifth chapter, and uh, we're at verse six. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been tracking the life of David. And uh, he was uh, working, you know, for Saul all that time, and then Saul went crazy trying to kill him, and eventually Saul uh, gets dies in battle. Now all of Israel rallies around David, and we have Judah and Israel. Judah's to the south, Israel's to the north. Judah's like the one tribe, but they're huge. Okay, they've got huge influence. Uh, the rest of the eleven tribes make up uh, Israel. And that's where you get, you'll, you'll read in the Bible, they're talking about Judah and Israel, Israel and Judah. It's, it's kind of like the north and the south, if you will, uh, except that it's one gigantic state versus the other states. And uh, they didn't really get along very well. David brings them all together now and uh, as, as king. So he becomes king over Israel. And so then we pick up at verse 6 now. The king, talking about David, and his men marched to Jerusalem. To attack the Jebusites. Now at this time. Jerusalem is kind of in between. Uh, Judah. And Israel. And so it's, it's strategic. In that. By being in the middle. It will help to join the entire nation. Together. So the Jebusites are the ones who live in Jerusalem. And the Jebusites said to David. He's attacking. So you won't get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They're basically insulting him. You can't get in here. Uh, well, not a good thing to say to David because David is this monster warrior at this point. And a very simple verse, verse 7 says, Nevertheless, <laughs> David captured the fortress of Zion. So it didn't take much, you know, and uh, he took it. On that day, David said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. So he's being kind of smart here. And that's why they came up with this saying. That the blind and the lame will not enter the palace. Of course that's 4,000 years ago. We don't have that saying today. Uh, so David then took up residence in the fortress. And he called it now the city of David. It has remained uh, that name uh, to this day. Uh, Jerusalem is known as the city of David. Uh, He built up the area around it from the supporting terraces inward and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and kind of just a big gift uh, from that king to to the new king. And they built a palace for David. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. Punishment. Glutton for punishment. And, uh, and had more sons and daughters were born to him. And these are the name of their children. You can read them. I don't want to read them. All right. Then uh, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went in full force to search for him. Uh, but when David heard about it, they went uh, down to the stronghold. And the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And so David inquired of the Lord, shall I go attack? The Lord says, yeah, he goes down there, kicks their butts. All right. And uh, so they, twice they have this big battle with the Philistines. And uh, you can read about that. So now we're going to kind of skip through some things because we're now getting back into boring sections of the Old Testament here that really don't have a lot to do with us. If you've got great interest in genealogies or specifically what happened to the Old Testament lines you can certainly study that on your own chapter 6 now so now David does uh, an important thing so he, he gets 
Jerusalem. He now turns it into what he calls the city of David. This is my city now. And he's joined the south and the north together. The kingdom is united under David. And he makes a big move. And he now decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant uh, to Jerusalem. To make it, you know, it's a major religious statement now. This is going to be our capital. So, uh, so David brought it together out of, uh, out of Israel, chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, talking about the name of God, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the Ark. So uh, here comes the Ark. They, they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. What hill? I have no idea. Anyway, Uzzah and Aoi, looks like Ohio messed up, uh, sons of Abinadab were guiding the new cart, and the Ark of God was on it. And Aoi, Aoheo, whatever his name is, good grief, don't call your kids these things, uh, was walking in front of it. Now David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. With songs and harps and lyres, tambourines, sistrums and cymbals. So there's this big partay happening. The Ark of the Covenant coming. This is a major statement. They are at an all-time emotional high. They have finally brought the nation together. Now they are becoming this major butt-kicking force to be dealt with. And in fact, Israel grows into one of the uh, strongest, if not the strongest nation in the world at this time. During uh, David's rule and Solomon's rule. Um, it eventually all falls apart and they have civil war and stuff. We'll eventually try to explain that later. But uh, they bring them all together and they've got the musicians going and they are celebrating and they are dancing and they are partying. They're so excited. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Now, um, the oxen stumbled a little bit and he was concerned you know, for the ark. So he reaches up to steady the ark. Well, it sounds like a nice thing to do, an innocent thing to do, but they were taught in the strictest of, of terms, you do not touch the thing. Okay, there, there was strict protocols. God considered that ark extremely holy. There were very strict rules on how to deal with it. This is where the Ten Commandments were and, and all this stuff. And I mean, the presence of God was all over this thing. And uh, so anyway... Uh, while it seems like, certainly from my viewpoint, not probably everybody here, that that was no big deal, you just have to remember the context at the time. To whom much is given, much is required. When God is showing up in person, you've got to take things very, very special and seriously and obey all the rules. Well, he reaches up and touches this thing because the ox were stumbling for a minute. It doesn't say it was really falling over. But the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. It was an irreverent thing as far as God was concerned. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So here's this guy. This is the oxen are kind of hard time. He reaches up there and studies it. And, and God just strikes him dead right on the spot. And whoa. Ho chi mama. Okay. Well then David was upset. Verse 8. He was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day the place is called Perez Uzzah. Which means outbreak against Uzzah. Well, David now, he's afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He's stressed out. Goodness gracious, if you don't just touch it right, people are going to drop over dead. Um, He was kind of freaked out. Uh, He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. So he decided not to bring it because he was upset. You know, obviously, 
he was good friends with Uzzah. He felt bad about this whole thing, and he was basically mad. Uh, and he said, listen, I, just let's leave uh, the ark here. Instead, so he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained there in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And as a result, the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Um, one of two things would happen with the ark of the covenant. If the ark was in a place that God approved of, then great blessings would happen to whoever it was associated with it. If God was not happy with where the ark was, then great curses would come on and plagues and everything else. So, I mean, you know, it was it was no guarantee, you know, park the ark at my house. Yeah, park at my house. Yeah, but if it wasn't a good thing. You're pretty much going to die, or somebody's going to die. I mean, it's not a good thing. So anyway, they leave it there. David's upset. Well, it turns out now everything's being blessed. It was to be like if all of a sudden we parked the ark in your garage, and you know, you know, you the government decides you uh, overpaid your taxes for the last ten years, they're going to give it all back to you, and your wife wins a five million dollar lottery, and you know, uh, just everything. You know, your kid gets scholarships to Harvard for the rest of their life. I mean, whatever. Just everything starts going right. Then this is, yes, this is a good move, parking it in the garage. All right? So, now when David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God, then it was kind of encouraging to David now. I thought, well, okay, so maybe God isn't ticked off that we moved the thing. So David went down, and then he brought the ark up of the God out of the house of Obed-Edom. If I was Obed-Edom, I'd be bummed because, dude, you can leave it here as long as you like. You know what I'm saying? Because things are going really well. Doesn't say what was happening, but just big blessings were happening to this. Enough that everybody started noticing. So uh, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, so now they're being real careful. One, two, three. Why are they being careful? The last guy croaked. All right? Let's be really conservative now. So they took six steps, and then the Bible says David would offer sacrifices to God, and, and now they're really taking their time moving this thing. So when they had taken those six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. They're worshiping God. David now, he's wearing a linen ephod, this uh, holy out thing, whatever, um, uh, basically disrobes, we're going to find out here in a little second. He basically strips down to his undies. Uh, and he starts dancing with all his might. So he kind of just sheds everything and he's down to the, you know, tidy dighties. And he's jumping, he's praising God. I don't know what kind of groove he's got going. You know, I don't know what's happening. But he starts dancing. And, and, and uh, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. So they're being very careful moving it. They're praising God. They're worshiping. He's dancing. He's celebrating. This is like a big deal that's going on. So now as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Now remember, this was David's first wife that he had to kill 200 Philistines to get 100 Philistine foreskins to pay for the girl. He actually went above and beyond and got 200 foreskins. Owie, owie, it hurts thinking about it. But anyway, and then, uh, so she's looking at it. Now, remember, after David went running for his life, Saul did what? He took Michael and gave her to somebody else. So all these years now, she's had another husband. And remember, it's kind of sad. Last week we were reading how as, as David's taken her back, he's crying behind her he wants his wife back and it is a very sad thing she undoubtedly felt for him you know she's at this point she's being a pawn 
Um, you know, did David, you know, some argument as to did he really want her back? Was it a matter of, gee, she was mine and you shouldn't have taken her? Was it a political thing? I've been studying some secular history of this period of time. They obviously don't look at it through biblical lenses, but they're just looking at the historical facts. They thought the reason he did this was because by uh, keeping the wife of the former king, it, it brings everybody together to join the nations, whatever. But she's not, you know, a big... I, I, you can see her heart not really being into this at this point. As far as she's concerned, regardless of whatever David was doing, she is a pawn. She gets handed to David first, then gets taken away, and Pop gives her to somebody else. And then after all these years, now they pull her away and give him back to David. So, I mean, I, you can imagine how you would feel, ladies, if this was you. Okay? So she's there. Who knows where her heart's at in all this? Then she saw, uh, when she saw King David leaping, and dancing. So he's got the, the leaping dance going on here. Uh, he's doing this before the Lord. She despised him in her heart. Okay? Now, you think, you know, I've heard this preach that she uh, didn't like the fact that he wasn't being dignified as a king. And certainly he wasn't being very dignified. Kings didn't usually strip down to their undies and go into the leaping dancing mode. Okay, this is not, at least you can pretty much be sure I won't be doing that. But uh, you know, if you do, I'd run for the doors. Oh my gosh, he's in his undies. But, uh, um, you know, he's doing all this kind of stuff. But you have to remember, where's her heart at at this point? She's been a pawn in all of this. All she's got to do is see something just out of the ordinary and it would be easy for her to despise him. I would think she probably despised him in the first, wouldn't you think? You know, because she's just being jerked around. Uh, so she gets really criticized in lots of sermons uh, historically uh, that I've heard preach along these lines. But I cut the girl some slack. I feel bad for her. All she knows at this point is that he's dancing like a jack and ninny in front of everybody. And it's easy for her to get into this despising mode uh, with, with him. So um, then they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And uh, David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. They're just worshiping like crazy. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave, gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. So he basically feeds everybody. You know, This is just this big party, uh, lots of wealth at this point, uh, which is just beginning. It becomes an extremely wealthy dynasty uh, really goes to the next level under Solomon I mean these guys you talk about a run on the stock market I mean you, uh, especially when Solomon comes along they had unparalleled prosperity it was, it's known as Israel's golden age this is when this nation things could not possibly go better for them through the life of David and, and Solomon actually David is the one who's the most revered but in terms of actual financial prosperity and peace, it actually even jumps higher uh, under Solomon. Uh, so anyway, but so, you know, he feeds everybody, puts on this big party, pays for everything. And when David returns home to bless his household, Michael, uh, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and she basically chews him out. She reams him out. She treats him disrespectfully. But again, you've got to assume she's got some serious emotional issues in the first place. Again, I cut her slack. She says, how the, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls 
of his servants as any vulgar fellow would do. So she basically reams him out for stripping down to his undies and dancing the way that he did in front of the slave girls. And, you know, what are you anyway? Uh, I just think there were more issues behind this that set this off. Well, David says to Michael, look, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father. Ooh, there's some fun. Or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I'll celebrate from the Lord any way I feel like it, is basically what he's saying. I'll even become more undignified than this. I don't know. It's going to get less than the undies? I don't know. But uh, I will be humiliated in my own eyes. I will humble myself as much as I want before God. And by, by the way, these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor by them. So, not a good situation. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Uh, you know, whether or not he kept having relations with her, I don't know, might clarify a little bit later. I've always been under the impression that from that point on, you know, he didn't have anything to do with her, quit having sex with her, even though she was still technically part of the wife deal. Which is easy to do when you got half a dozen other wives laying around the place, you know, so it's no big deal to him. All right, so now uh, chapter 7. Now this chapter 7, this is, this is a major thing here. Um, uh, it says, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. Now there's peace. Uh, he said to Nathan the prophet, ding, a new name. You know, it was Samuel the prophet. Who's the next prophet to come along? Now we see who it is. It's a guy by the name of Nathan the prophet. And uh, he says to Nathan the prophet, look, here I am living in this place of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So he feels guilty at this point. You know, he's been blessed. Things are going great. He's got this palace. There's all this stuff. But the ark of the covenant is still in a tent. Okay? Because that's the way it always was. And obviously no one was in a big hurry to mess with the ark of the covenant unless you take off God and now it becomes a curse instead of a blessing. And uh, we've read about some of those scenarios already. So he says this to Nathan. He says, man, come on, Nathan, man. I'm in this place. Let me build a temple to God. Let me do something uh, to God. And Nathan's initial response is, well, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. So Nathan basically blesses him, passes off on the deal. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and God had a a little bit of a different take on it. So uh, let's read this. Now go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, are you the one who built me a house to dwell in? Uh, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers who I commanded to shepherd my people, how come you haven't built me a house of cedar? In other words, words, God's saying, I don't care. All right. Now then tell my servant David, who this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great. Now God starts giving him some huge promises here. Uh, Much like he did first to Abraham. And you know, all of a sudden Abraham comes along and God gives him these huge promises that we read about in Genesis. You know, through your seed all the kingdoms of the earth will be blessed. And we've been basically following the line of Abraham ever since. Uh, Moses blesses him, gives huge promises to Moses. And now David, and now he gives these huge promises to the house of David. This is kind of like the last major one um, 
that, that God gives and, uh, uh, you know, this great blessing to the house of David. You'll remember oftentimes you'll read in the Gospels, uh, people would cry out to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, thou son of David. See, it was a big deal. They knew he was a relative of this line. This was a big deal. If you could tra- trace your lineage back to David. And it was, everybody knew it. Uh, and the Bible even shows us the exact lineage of who was the father of who, was the father of who, all the way down to Jesus. So they all knew he was part of this line, and and then hence claim to the throne of David, if you will. Uh, God basically fulfills the promises to David, and all the way back to Abraham at this point in the Messiah. So the line goes all the way down, and now through the Messiah, who becomes, uh, you know, obviously the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the throne of David, as it will, in sense, becomes established throughout all eternity. So we see these promises here. Excuse me for a minute. <coughs> anyway, <coughs> it's just water. Relax. Okay, now, um, so he says, now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore. So well, what do you mean? People have been oppressing them. For a long time. That's because they were always disobedient. If these guys would have stayed in the promises of God. They wouldn't have the problems that they had. They brought all kinds of grief on themselves. So he's given all these promises. As I did at the beginning. And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you. That the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over. And you rest with your fathers. In other words when you die. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So he's basically telling David. That you can't. I'm not going to let you build. A temple for me. Your son. Will build a temple. We will find out later the reason. uh, He does this. God says is because David was a man of blood. Uh, He was this warrior. And had a lot of blood on his hands. And we've kind of skimmed over it again. I've mentioned it a few times, but I mean, these guys were brutal. You know, by Western standards that we have today, David and his guys, I mean, they were all like that, but they were brutal. And we're not going to see the end of it here for a while. When he would come in, they would kill every man, woman, and child. I mean, these guys were, the rivalries that were going on was, was something else. And, uh, and David personally and was responsible for the deaths of countless tens of thousands of men and women in these battles and stuff like that. So uh, God is basically saying, you're not going to do this. I'm going to have your son do this. Who Solomon, who was not a man of blood, is the one who eventually built Solomon's temple, which the only remnant of it to this day is the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, which we'll try and explain all later as we go today but this great incredible temple that Jesus walked into and preached during his time and stuff the great mighty temple the holy of holies all this incredible stuff was all built under Solomon his son so uh, he says your son's going to do this he is the one who will build a house for my name I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father he will be my son when he does wrong I will punish him with a rod of men with floggings inflicted by men but my love will never be taken away from him as, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. So he's making a major promise now. It's, it's kind of, it's akin to when God flooded the earth. And then after that was all done, he made a promise, I will never do this again. 
He's saying, I took my love from Saul because of his disobedience. But even if the son after you is disobedient, I will not do that again. Um, you know, da, 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 da. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Uh, your throne will be established forever. This is specifically speaking prophetically now of the Messiah who will come through the line of David and will be born in the city of David, which is the city of... No, no, no. The, I'm not saying the city of David. The, home, the original home of David was what? Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus is born. So that's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was the town of David, the original, his original home, not the city of David, which becomes Jerusalem. Okay, so that's how we get all of that stuff. So Nathan reported to David all that the words of this entire revelation. This statement here, this, this is a major uh, prophecy, a major promise that God gives to uh, David and to the house of David that it will basically endure uh, forever, uh, it doesn't literally do because there's no kingdoms today. Of it's kind of interesting. I wonder how Jews think of this. Uh, you know, I've never asked one, but uh, this promise that this will last forever because there is no kingdom anymore. Why? Because it actually ends at Jesus. Jesus is the one who becomes King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and in this sense, the house of David will last forever. Okay. So anyway, then David has a prayer. You can read it. I don't want to read it. All right, and he starts praising God for everything, uh, and then in chapter eight. Uh, we talk about uh, uh, victories that David has. Now he's just going through and he's kicking butt and taking names and he's taking huge amounts of gold and silver from these countries that he's plummeting and stuff, bringing it all back to Jerusalem and to the kingdom of God and to establishing this dynasty of King David. So um, so you can read about that in chapter uh, 8. Chapter 9, uh, David asks the question in verse 1. He says, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for the sake of Jonathan? Because he loved Jonathan. He says, Is there anybody left that I can still... Because, I mean, at this point, he's so blessed. He's so successful. He still wants to be able to honor that name. And uh, so they basically remind him of... Remember the, the kid that uh, when they escaped, fell and crippled his feet and stuff like that? Uh, the guy's name was Mephibosheth. <laughs> there was a name. Mephibosheth. So, uh, so he goes and gets Mephibosheth and he brings them, brings him to Jerusalem and he puts them and he says, you will eat at my table to the day of your death. And he honors it. Again, the secular historians that I was reading, of course, again, they're, they're cynical at, at everything. They're not looking through a, a spiritual lens. They said this was another move that David did by keeping him at the table. He kept tabs on the line of Saul so there would be no other further rebellions from Saul's line. Um, I really don't think, I take the Bible's version of it, David really loved Jonathan. He loved Saul. We remember how bizarre this was. So, you know, that's not, that's, that's not that what this was about. It was about him wanting to honor the memory of, of Saul and of, of Jonathan whom he loved. Okay, uh, then we go to chapter uh, 10. And, uh, and again, you can read all this on, on your own if you want. Um, this is just uh, more, more battles. Uh, let me read a little bit of, of the first part. This is kind of interesting. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. So the older king dies, now the young king comes up. And this is a problem often with young leadership, untested leadership. We see this throughout the Bible. They tend to be a little arrogant. And they tend to not have a lot of wisdom. And they tend to do stupid things. uh, And they get themselves in trouble. So the older king, who David had a good relationship with, dies. The young guy now pops up. And David thought, 
uh, verse 2, I will show kindness to Hanun, uh, the son of Nahesh, just as his father had showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. Well, when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun they didn't trust him. You know, so, you know, new leadership, you know, let's not trust these guys. Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men here to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun listens to these nimrods and he basically picks a fight with David. Now check, look what he does. So Hanun sees David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, and then cut off their garment in the middle at the buttocks. And so, right. so they basically tear a big hole in their butts. So they, they shave half their thing and now their butts are exposed. And so they're walking around half bearded with butts hanging out. And this is a stupid thing to do. Because you're doing this to whom? David. Why would you mess with David? To this point, who has ever defeated David? Who has ever been? I mean, this guy is a killing machine. He's unstoppable. And again, here's young leadership being stupid. So instead of taking, because David says, man, I want to do this just to thank the guy. And instead of taking the wisdom and, and gee, thanks David, da-da-da-da, he gets all his, you know, testosterone going and he humiliates this guy. When, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, look, stay in Jer- Jericho till your beards grow back and I presume cover your butts. Uh, and then, uh, and then of course David goes and he, what, he just slaughters these guys. You know, you can read about it here, but it's like, hello, what kind of a moron are you? So, so they basically get wiped out. And, and this just goes on and on. David, at this point, is virtually unstoppable and has become a major power, if not one of the major powers in the known world at the time. God is so blessing David. This kingdom now, from these bunch of fractured little uh, tribes, as when David was growing up, now has really rattled. Because remember, when David was growing up, there was no king. It wasn't until he was probably a very young boy when Saul became king. It was their very first king. And then God makes him king. And now he, in, in, in the space of just the second even king to ever even exist in Israel. Totally brings the entire nation together. And creates this incredible dynasty. Then in chapter 11. David makes a horrible mistake. He does something like what are you thinking? And something that is a major uh, point of pain in his life for the rest of his life. And we will continue that when we gather once again. Anyway. <clears throat> Wait a minute. I've got, that clock is, it's, is it only 8.30? Do you need a half hour for baptismals? Oh, so I should keep going. The clock, huh? Oh, no, no, no. Continue the tape. We will continue. And look at his horrible mistake. (laughs) So you don't have to wait till next time. Don't you hate that? All of a sudden, they leave you hanging. It's like watching 24. (laughs) What's going to happen to Jack? Let's all pray for Jack. All right. All right, we'll continue then. The clock's at zero, and it's like half hour to go yet, so forget that. I'm a pretty good guy paying attention to the clock, though, huh?
let's hear it for the pastor. All right, here we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> All right, so now, David, does the, oh my gosh, what are you thinking move of his life? So in the spring, at the time when kings go off the war, David sent Joab. Now, remember we talked about Joab. Joab was a bit of a problem, kind of a loose cannon, and David wouldn't deal with him. He eventually does deal with Joab. I think he eventually kills him. But uh, he's, he lets him get away with all kinds of stuff. But Joab, is, is, he has a lot of trust in Joab. He's like in, in charge of, of the war, of the army. So David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite, Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So now we see a different. David was always out there with them in battle. Now he's not. He's kicking back. You guys go do this. You don't need me. And this is his first mistake. Okay, instead of being uh, involved in the battle, instead of being involved fighting, you could use the analogy of being hands-on in ministry, he kicks back and, and, and just sits around Jerusalem. Well, chapter 11, verse 2 now. Uh, One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. He's basically bored. He's just chilling out. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Okay, the woman was very beautiful. Well, so what happens? Now, David's up there. He looks over and he checks out. Ooh, Hochi Mama. You know, lady, don't you have curtains? But anyway, so he looks and apparently just bathing out there with, you know, whoever's in eye shot gets to see her naked. And uh, so David starts lusting after her. And he gets all hot and bothered. And David sent someone to find out about her. Who's the bathing babe? And the man said, well... Isn't this Bathsheba? That's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messengers to go get her. She responded. She came to him. They're both guilty at this point. Uh, Now, you could argue and say, well, if the king asks you, you should go. No, you know, I don't know. I think she could have uh, said, no, that's inappropriate, you know, I don't know, or maybe once she found out what he's up to, left at that point, I don't know. Here is a married woman, her husband's out there in battle, risking his life for her safety and of her countrymen, and she goes out and she hangs with David, and he slept with her, although I don't think there was a lot of sleeping involved. But you get the idea. He has sex with her. So he commits adultery with this woman. Seduces her. We don't know how, how much time was involved in this. Was this right away? Chances are this probably went on for a while, you know, until they get themselves in trouble, start d- dropping their defenses. And, you know, these things rarely happen on purpose, people. That's why you just got to be smart about these things. Don't be getting real close to somebody of the opposite sex. All right. Uh, I warn you from time to time about this thing, especially in churches. Uh, I know it sounds weird. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Church can be a very sensual place. You say, what do you mean? Well, I mean, everybody's always is their best at church. They look usually better than they normally look. They smell nice. Everybody's on their best. They're smiley. They're happy, huggy, hand-holding, touchy, sharing. Be careful. Don't be sharing your heart with someone of the opposite sex. Okay? You just got to be smart about this. Affairs and stuff that happen a lot in churches, 
It happens for these very reasons. Very few affairs, ladies and gentlemen, uh, happen for sexual reasons. Overwhelmingly, they happen because of emotional reasons. Uh, they're faulty emotions. They're confused emotions. They're not legit emotions, but they are blinding emotions, and people start acting and doing things very stupidly, very foolishly. And uh, um, you spouses do not buy into your spouse, be it male or female, and I've seen it on both sides of the aisle in this church, where it could be the husband complaining about the wife who's getting real close and spending time with other guys or women who don't like the idea of their husband uh, spending all this time with other women. Uh, usually the offending spouse who's doing this turns around and accuses the other one of being paranoid. Oh, you're just being paranoid. There's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. We're just friends. Spouses, do not buy this nonsense in any way, shape, or form. Are you hearing me? Somebody say amen. amen. You see your spouse hanging with somebody, male or female, that you're uncomfortable with, you call them on it and tell them to knock it off. And if they give you snot about it, saying, oh, you're just paranoid, come and see me. And we'll have a come to Jesus meeting with them for crying out loud. Stop this nonsense. Well, Pastor, don't you do that? No, why not? My wife has a problem with me having girlfriends. I don't know, just unreasonable woman. What the heck? Well, they're not a girlfriend. They just happen to be a friend who happens to be a girl. Yeah, it's called a girlfriend. Or boyfriends. Do not tolerate this behavior. Okay, you see it, you're not being paranoid. Part of uh, being there for one another is call each other to account. And if you need to call your spouse to account on that behavior, you call it. And trust me, they will not like it. They never like it. Because at some point it's a little insulting. I get it, get over it. Better you get a little ruffles feathered than you be developing some relationship that is inappropriate in the church for God's sakes. Now, this happens a lot in churches. It doesn't have a lot in this one. But it happens a lot in churches because people won't talk about these things. Come on. We've got to be smarter than this. Be friends. Hug. Man, the biggest hugger in the church is me. Okay? I'm not paranoid. But hey, hey, this really getting close and really sharing each other's hearts and pray. Oh, let's pray with each other. Beat you with a stick for crying out loud. Some woman needs prayer and talking to you, send her to somebody else. Somebody say amen. amen. Let's just be smarter about this. I don't think David sat out thinking, gee, let's let me have an affair. Oh, this is what I'm talking to this naked woman. Yeah, yeah, we're just, just go fellowship a little bit, that's all. Praise God. <laughs> Discuss the pastor's sermons, you know, that's all it is, you know. It's... <sighs> You know, that it's, it amazes me how often we repeat stupid. Stupid is repeated over and over and over again. And I am just stunned. 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 The stories I hear. <laughs> just. <clears throat> anyway. Let's be smart. Let's be smart. Anyway, so he goes and he sleeps with her. The nitwit. Goodness gracious. I mean, he knows better. He has to know better than this. What is he thinking? Here is a man God has blessed. And here again, this is what happens sometimes when you start succeeding so much. 
You start succeeding so much. I've seen this in the ministry with guys who get real successful in ministry. A lot of them, in the height of their success, fall into sexual sin. They start believing their own press. They start believing they're really this something super stud thing and, and they get themselves in trouble. You know, no. No, 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 no. One of the things I love about pastoring and being part of this church and pastoring all you guys is this is home. You guys hold my feet to the fire. You know, I'm out there. You should say, I mean, it's funny. Pastor Latham was just with me. You know, we traveled. You know, people out there, they treat me like a rock star, you know. You know, it's hilarious. I don't take it too seriously. I'm a geezer at this point, you know. I just My wife and I sit there and laugh. Oh, Pastor Mark, do you need this? Oh, I'm so thrilled you're here. Ooh, you know, okay. So, I'm, you know, because they see me on TV, they think I'm Elvis or something. All right? You know, but lest that ever goes to my head, all I got to do is come back home. Here. People say, hey, Mark, how's it going, brother? Good to see you. You know, you, know, I mean, you guys, you know, we don't play this game here. There's not this... Ooh, ah, ee, ah stuff. And, uh, and, and it's good. But I think some of these guys, they get too caught up in their own success. And they make very, very stupid uh, moves. And pray for me and all your pastors. God keep us from doing something stupid. It is my greatest fear. I've always told you that. And I'll keep telling you that. My greatest fear is, because I've seen it happen to greater men than me, who give up everything because they get sucked into one of these pits and you know man god have mercy on me uh anyway so it says she purified herself from her uncleanness and she washed up after the act and then she went back home well then lo and behold she conceives she sends back word to david i'm pregnant well david freaks Oh, good grief, you know. Uh, again, this is why our young people need to be in these services. So they can hear these sermons. Some of them need to hear this thing. Hey, well, it only happened once. That's all it takes, Jack. Seriously, young people. I don't know how he got pregnant. You don't know how, huh? I'll tell you how. One time. So he freaks. So David now is panicked. The lady's pregnant. So David sends word to Joab, who's in charge of the army. Man, you've got to send me Uriah the Hittite. Why? You've got to get Uriah back here so he can have sex with his wife. So that, you know, he'll think it's his. So now we're into lying mode. We went from adultery to being an adulterous pig. To now I'm going to be a lying slime bag. This is David. This is David. Acting now this way. So Joab sends Uriah back. Where Uriah comes to him. David says, uh, hey, how you doing, man? How are the soldiers? How's the war going? Blah, blah, blah. He could care less. He's just saying, there. He says, go, go to your house. Wash your feet. You know, go home. Relax. Chill out. You know, I'm glad you gave me the update. It wasn't an update. He just wanted him back. So Uriah lives, leaves the palace. And a gift from the king was sent with him. And he's being nice. But Uriah instead, he's, he lays down at the entrance of the palace. With all of his master's servants. All the servants of David. He just goes, lays down with all the servants and sleeps there. When David was told, hey, Uriah didn't go home, David goes, oh, good, that's not what I need. He said, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said, the ark and Israel and all of Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and all the Lord's men are, are camped out in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and have sex with my wife? 
Surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Here's a very moral man. He wouldn't even think of going to a place of comfort while his kinsmen and his brothers were out there fighting battle. Well, this is a bummer for David. So then David says to him, well, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem the next day. Well, David comes up with this plan. Let's get him drunk. Let's get him hooched up. Let's go with the Wisconsin plan. So, so David's, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. So he's basically just keeping, keep, oh, hey, you thirsty, you look thirsty, you thirsty. He gets the guy completely soshed. Because he wants him now to get, hey, where's my wife? I got to talk to you for a minute. You know, so, but in the evening, Uriah, again, even though he's drunk, goes out and sleeps on his mat with all the other servants. And he wouldn't go home. Well, in the morning, David wrote a letter to... Now, now, he's panicked. He's freaked. And we've gone from an adulterating pig to a slime bag liar to now he's going to become a murderer. This is David, the guy who had the tender heart to God. This is the guy who wrote the Psalms. This is the black mark in this man's life. In order to save his own embarrassment, he writes this letter to Joab. He said, listen, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. What he did was he attacked in a place and got too close to the wall, which they knew was basically a suicide mission. And he put Hittite, Uriah the Hittite in there, and Uriah dies. And Joab sent a full account of the battle. Now he tells the messenger, when you have finished giving the king account of this battle, the king, king's anger may flare up. You might get really ticked. And they'll ask you, why didn't you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you know they would shoot the arrows from the wall? In other words, what he was doing was a blatant, stupid military move. And he said, why don't you tell the king this? He might get very ticked. And and who who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesh? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall? Remember that story? The guy got too close to the wall and a woman dropped a big rock on him, bonked him on the head and killed him. He said, don't you remember that? You don't get close to the walls when fighting. I mean, so Joab knew that what they did was a suicide mission. It was insane. And he thought when David first would hear this, he would get really angry at Joab. So, why are you some kind of an idiot? Uh, so he says, if he asks you this, all you got to do is tell him this. Oh, by the way, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. Knowing that that would connect the dots for David. And now that will calm him down. And he won't get mad. So here we go from slacking off. Lusting, committing adultery, lying and deceiving, drunkenness, and now he has the poor man murdered. A man who had done no wrong. A man who was as moral of a man as can possibly be. A man who wouldn't even think about going to sleep in his own bed, in the comfort of his own home, while his countrymen were suffering. Here was a fabulous man who David then killed, all trying to cover his sin. So when we continue this, then we will find out what happened there. Okay? And how does God now deal with David 
in regard to his sin. So for the second time, I am done. <laughs> now we're good. Okay. Um, you're going to take the offering first? Okay, we're going to take the offering, and then we're going to have, we're going to baptize a few people. So praise God for that. Let's have the ushers come forward. And the musicians, wherever they all are at. There they at. With sexy legs like that, man, you're going to cause everybody to lust. I think we're safe. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word and for your wisdom. Help us to learn whenever we look into the scriptures, the principles that we can apply into our own lives. God, help us to see the horrible pain and destruction of sin uh, that uh, went so wrong when David took his eyes off of you and started just chasing for what he wanted. Help us, Lord God, to honor you in all that we do. Bless this offering, we pray. Use this money for the advancement of your kingdom. Give your people generous hearts, I ask. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen.